Hi, I'm Chris Sarandon, and welcome to Cooking by Heart. Where we revisit the vivid memories of the food we grew up with and the people and the stories attached to that time in our lives. Today, my special guest is Dr. Sarah Seidelman. Uh, I'm going to give you a relatively brief introduction of her accomplishments. If I read them all, I wouldn't have time for the podcast. She is a graduate of Cornell University, and she holds master's degrees in human nutrition and a PhD in nutritional biology from Columbia University. After completing her medical training at Case Western University, she was then accepted into the prestigious physician scientist training program at the Yale School of Medicine. She went on to the Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital, where her training and research supported was, was supported by the National Institutes of Health. Her research has focused on the complex interrelationship between genes, pathogens, nutrients, cardiovascular health, and aging, which is very uh, applicable to our show. And her research has been published in top-tier medical journals. Her research has been incorporated into multiple clinical preventive health guidelines in the U.S. and Europe, and her expertise has been the feature of over 600 worldwide news articles in, among other publications, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, Time, New York Times, The Guardian, too many others to mention. She's currently an assistant professor of clinical medicine at the Columbia University Medical Center. She is the mother of four children. And full disclosure, she is my primary care physician. <laughs> so, Sarah, welcome, welcome, welcome Thank to Cooking you, by Heart. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's lovely to have you. So, um, we generally start the show with um, what I call provenance, which is where you're from. So, mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about where you, where you were born, where you grew up. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I was born in Princeton, New Jersey, but my most of my growing up was in Greenwich, Connecticut, where oh. I now live in practice. Right. And so this is the place where my father grew up, my grandparents lived. I have lots of aunts, uncles, cousins, family, friends who are like family here. And and so that was a big draw. Yep, yeah, this is home. Home exactly. Home. Tell me a little bit about mom and dad. Mom and dad were high school sweethearts. They were very, they were from very different families. And so that, that informed me very much. So my father's family, as you could imagine, living in Greenwich was, you know, a very affluent, you know, old American family. And mm -hmm. my mother came from a very poor background, I would say, mm -hmm. grew up with very little means. And so came from really different backgrounds. They met in school? They did. They met, they, they actually met at boarding school. So my, my mother's mother was such a hard worker. Her parents were divorced when she was young. And my grandmother worked for the state of Connecticut. She worked two jobs to put her kids through school. Mm-hmm. And so my parents met when they were at boarding school in high school. Tell me a little bit about uh, home life, what it was like. What, what did your mom cook? My mother, my mother did cook. So my mother was raised for part of the time in France. She lived in, in France as a young child. Ah. Her father 
fought in the war and um, and at the end of the war he was he was in France and they decided to he decided to teach there so my mother's young life was was in France so there were parts of do you know where all that I know is that it was the French countryside oh. the food was one thing but you know she was a young American girl in France in a French school system and so she you know just as a little child she had memories of you know, They'd still hit you over the the hand with a ruler, you know, right. when you didn't right. speak French just perfect. Right. So, you know, those were a lot of her memories. But of course, she took in a lot of the food culture. So, you know, even as a little kid, I remember grating zucchini for for a souffle, you know, and souffle was going to wow. be our, our dinner. Wow. But my mother was very, had very kind of I, I think of them as as Danish. Her her family originally was Danish, but had these sort of sensibilities of minimalism. Mm. So you might make the souffle, but you had one small slice. You know, if if we had a sandwich, it was going to be, you know, one slice of something or mm. the driest peanut butter and jelly sandwich you could possibly imagine because there was so, so little on it. We never had leftovers. So th- those were her kind of sensibilities. So she she was very much in the kitchen, but it was not this overflowing of right. food. Right. But it had a heavy French influence, obviously. Yeah, at, at, t- at times it did. At times, it could be somewhat decadent, you know, in that way. Really? She would certainly spend hours to make one, you know, one one delicious meal that she liked. Mm-hmm. Does anything stand out in terms of what the sort of standard fare was uh, at home? Well, things change very much. So there was my my early life as a child. And that was all about what was wholesome. So I think my mother was a, a bit ahead of her time in that sense. Oh, really? There was no white bread in my house. There was no candy in, in my house. A very, very few processed foods. That was hard as a kid growing up in elementary school because all of the other kids had white bread and Coca-Cola in, in, mm-hmm. in you know, in their lunch boxes. And honestly, I mean, I was a kid like every you know, like every other kid. And I felt bad because the kids would make fun of me, you know, say things like, oh, your mother must not like you very much. Did she throw your bread on the floor before she made that? (laughs) So, you know, I had carrot sticks. Other kids had potato chips. So I was offered carrot sticks or, uh, you know, apple slices, which would turn Mm -hmm. brown by the time that I got to them. Always whole grain brown breads. And never, we were never allowed to have soda or sugar in the house. Right. I mean, it. it you know, it, uh, it, it. At the time, it sounded like a terrible privation. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it, in fact, you know, I every once in a while, my daughters will post the stuff that they put in their kids' lunches, and they sound very much like the lunches that your mother served. I know. I know. So, what was very different back then, I think, is very standard right now. Yeah. My mother's mother was one of 13. She grew up on a farm in New Hampshire. What my grandmother gave me there was really a connection to where was your food coming from? Yeah. 
she had her egg guy. She would go to the egg farm to get the eggs. She was not going to buy eggs from a grocery store. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if she bought meat, it was from the the one butcher that she trusted. She knew where the meat was coming from. She not, she wouldn't even serve us brown bread because she would never buy bread that was pre-made. It, everything had to be by scratch. Mm-hmm. That she made. That she, yeah, that's the way that they grew up on the farm. Mm-hmm. Was the farm in Connecticut? New Hampshire. It was in New Hampshire. It was nothing that I saw. It was her father's farm. So it was long gone by the time that I right. was a kid. But it certainly, it certainly shaped, you know, how she ate and what she did in her own home. Right. It's always interesting to me how, particularly with food, but any mm-hmm. number of cultural phenomena, that uh, food goes in cycles. Mm-hmm. And that we're obviously in a much more healthy cycle now than we've been in a long time. Still not just in terms of the general population. We'll get into this, I think, a little bit later. But mm-hmm. uh, how uh, I, a number of people that I talk to on the podcast will talk about, you know, a grandmother who had a garden. Mm-hmm. Or the family yeah. garden that they grew up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was literally food to table. Mm-hmm. There was no intermediary. Uh, and uh, interestingly, too, that when I grew up, I'm not when I grew up, when I lived a lot in, in the city, in New York City, mm-hmm. when I would go out to go shopping, I would go to an egg purveyor. I would go to a butcher. I would go mm-hmm. to a, a, you know, that was, wasn't one, it wasn't one-stop shopping. Yeah, yeah. And 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 the culture drastically drastically changed. We were, you know, until around sometime around the 1950s, maybe 1940s, we were all very connected to our food. If you think mm-hmm. about the history of Greenwich, Connecticut, it was a farming community. There was a large farm here. We've never been this separated from our food before, mm-hmm. and and it's not a good. It's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a problem, particularly in the Northeast, with how expensive land is. But we've never been this disconnected. And I think that people naturally are are getting back to this desire to have a connection with their food and to have more control over it because it has gotten so absurd. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I want to get into that a little bit more just in terms of general nutrition culturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But for the moment, I want to still stay with mm-hmm. your childhood. Mm-hmm. So then here you are in a household where your mom primarily, right? The dad didn't cook at all? So my father's side of the family is a, is another extreme. So he he comes from a very old American family, literally you know, nine of my ancestors on the Mayflower and Mm -hmm. many behind, you know, here since, since the very beginning were masons and engineers and really served the community from the very beginning. My grandmother was born in a home in which the, the kitchen was shut. You were, you were not allowed in the kitchen. There was a cook in the kitchen and the children were not allowed in. So she couldn't mm-hmm. even see it or experience what was going on behind the door. Mm-hmm. Her father also had a, had a farm that was close to the, the house. And I know that they enjoyed a lot of fresh food. But, but literally, there was a wall and a barrier mm-hmm. for her. 
there was no way for her to experience the kitchen. Right. And then she found herself in, she was in a very educated. She went to Cornell, the same undergraduate university that I did. That's where my grandparents met. Mm -hmm. She found herself with five kids in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I think that she bought hook, line and sinker, you know, the 1950s philosophy of don't waste your time, women in the kitchen. That is that that is not something that you need to concern yourself with, you know, buy the TV dinner. And and so my father had a very uninspired food experience as a child. It was, you know, TV dinners and, you know, I asked him this morning, dad, what do you think, what what foods come to mind in your childhood? He's like, oh, spam. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, you know, I've talked about this a couple of times before, but my brother, who was a gourmet cook and Mm -hmm. had like 400 cookbooks and loved to cook, he rediscovered spam Mm -hmm. at one point later in his life and started including it in recipes and loved it. I'm sure there's a nostalgia. Yeah. She was busy, but she also, you know, loved her her life. It meant that she could play two rounds of golf in the summer, come home and have a martini and, you know, didn't have to worry so much about dinner, you know, and that was, that was her, that was her experience. There are very few food. I don't really remember. I mean, I think that there was, it's as awful as it is, like a jello mold that she used to make, I think, in the summer. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, just, you know, awful. And food yeah, wasn't, yeah. that wasn't something that she, I think she could appreciate it for sure, but she didn't value it right. the way that my mother's side of the family did. Right. How many siblings? I have two sisters. Two sisters. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there were five of you. Did you guys go out at all? Oh, no, at all? just three of us. So three of us, my dad was one of five. Not when we were little. As we grew up, we went out a, a lot, but but mm-hmm. not as a child. We ate at home. Well, I'm I'm including in all this uh, uh, the teenage years as well. Mm-hmm. When we got into our teenage years, we did. We went out as a family. Were there special places? There was a place in upstate. So they would be special, special, special outings, yeah. right? For birthdays and such. There was this amazing place in upstate New York. It was called Harold's. I want to say it had like a Michelin star. It was the most special place. Harold and his wife ran it. They had they had live they had a trout pond out front and so if you ordered trout they would pull the trout out of the pond. Oh. And everything written on a chalkboard you know, what was being served that night. It was always different. And it was just this absolute passion of Harold and his wife. Mm. But it was just this small but spectacular experience because Mm -hmm. of the love and the thought and the care, you know, just the care of these two people, how much they loved this food and put that onto a plate for you. Mm -hmm. you. Despite the fact that uh, you were a teenager, uh, I, mm-hmm. I'm not commenting on your your character as a teenager because I think yeah. most teenagers are sort of oblivious to that sort of thing. It made an impression. Oh yeah, no, I've always I've always loved I've always loved food and appreciated food. Yeah, no, those were special experiences for me. Yeah, what was the chatter around the dinner table like when you were a kid? I just remember the feeling of 
like warmth around the table. Mm-hmm. At home, it was a very casual experience. We were generally eating at the table in the kitchen, you know, uh, and yeah. we weren't, we never had formal dinners. That was only for Thanksgiving or, mm-hmm. you know, some special thing. And so our meals were always casual. And often, you know, back in those days, my dad commuted to the city. So we were often eating before dad was home. And so, and something was put away for him. And so generally it was just the girls around the table. Right. And we were talking about things that were very practical. I played a lot of sports. We'd talk about games, schedules. Right. So I more remember the warmth around the table. There are times when I've spoken to people about their experience around the dinner table, uh, and often it was not warm. <laughs> you know, I've spoken to any number of the folks who have done podcasts with me. Remember, uh, I, I, I actually, one specific thing, Michael Patrick King, who talked about the fact that uh, his, the food at the table was so bland and so awful that the only thing that flavored it were the, were the tears that his mother <laughs> dribbled into the food when she was making it because she hated cooking so much. <laughs> well, my 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 father might have those stories, although my grandmother would never cry over it. Um, he had a saying in his family when he was growing up, moose shit but good, that, <laughs> that it didn't matter how awful the thing was that she served. You better smile if it was moose <laughs> shit. You say moose shit but good, mom. You know, <laughs> never complain. Because at least it was something. And if you <laughs> complained, you were going to get nothing tomorrow. Right. So. <laughs> uh, how about sc- uh, school? Um, what was the school food like when you were growing up? Hmm. Uh, that is, I know you took the healthy lunches with you. When I got to high school, I mean, I was a jock. I played three sports. I was, I was hungry, you know. So. Oh, right. I went to Greenwich High School. I went to the public school in Greenwich, and we had a pretty decent cafeteria. We had we had a couple of separate areas to to eat and choices, and then we had this Italian deli that's still that's still open and right around the corner from the high school. And so, like once you hit junior year and you could drive your car to school, you were going to Rinaldi's for for food, you know, right. and. The family was there, and they were they were just warm, ha- happy, wonderful, you know, characters in our lives that right. you know would see you walk in the door, and you know would would start making up your favorite, mm-hmm. you know. And so it was all about Rinaldi's, and I guess that that was the beginning. <laughs> the beginning of my love of Italian food. Would you consider that one of your, your awakenings as you grew up? My big awakening, I think that there were a couple. So one, I don't totally understand. And that was somewhere around the age of eight, maybe. Mm-hmm. I told my mother that I would no longer eat meat. And I, I can't exactly tell you why. I mean, I I didn't grow up in a vegetarian home. I clearly this was not, you know, something that was popular. I didn't have any friends that were doing it. And she was she said, Sarah, but you can't do that. You're going to not grow like I don't know how to do this for you. Mm -hmm. And and that was it. That's I stopped eating meat. And I can't say it wasn't because I didn't like it, because those were my some of my favorite foods until that time. It was just a 
I, th I think it was just you come into consciousness and I could understand what this was. And I and I realized that, well, it it was really quite practical. Well, if I could make a choice to eat a meal and it didn't involve, you know, killing an animal, then I would was going, then then why not? I'll I'll make right, this other right. choice. So this was an ethical I think at choice? first it was an ethical choice, but I can't, like, I wasn't standing on a soapbox, you know, saying, uh, talking about it. I choose to, to eat other foods. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so my, I don't think that my mother really knew how to, how to do that. Vegetarianism was not common. Right. There weren't a lot of options and she didn't know how to cook them. Obviously at some point with this extraordinary uh, resume that you have in science, mm -hmm. Yeah. Where did this science uh, interest in science come from? So I think that there was part of it that was just inherently me. From the time that I was, I don't, uh, that I have a memory. So sometime around kindergarten, kindergarten, made, maybe first grade, but I think kindergarten, you know, as my parents told me the story, you know, the school came to them and said, you know, you, your child is very good at science and math, let's say, mm -hmm. or the analytics and math. Right. And should be either, should either skip grades or should be in sort of advanced classes. And so from, from the time, so from the time that I remember, you know, I was, I was in advanced classes. My mother didn't want me to skip grades. Because of the social aspects, I was already young for my class. I was already very young for my class to begin with. So uh, I think I'm naturally inclined to those kinds of subjects, and and I and that sort of runs in my family. Many and many engineers on my grandmother's side, on on my father's other side, my my Swiss family. My great grandfather was a, a chemist. He was a PhD. So lots of engineers. Mm -hmm. One of my uncles was one of the city city planners of Manhattan. So things like that. One of my yeah. uncles was a founding member of NASA. Yeah, I think that we're just inclined to be scientific. And then, and then the other thing that really informed me, that really changed, I think, or altered my path in a way as a child was that my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer at thirty nine, uh. and and she took uh, an interest uh, um, very much in how how diet could help her mm -hmm. in her journey there. So, so food became food was very important to me before that, and I had already made choices about food and right. health for myself. Mm -hmm. But then we kind of went on the journey together, and I couldn't have done that myself because I couldn't drive. We had to go to you know, we, we had to drive far distances to find an organic market. There wasn't, mm. there wasn't access to these kinds of things when I was a kid. And she was, she was obviously at the, at the time and early for the time, I'm assuming, uh, cognizant mm -hmm. of the fact that there were things about organic food that were healthier than the, the diet that she had, she had been uh, following. Yeah. So at the time they thought of this, the, the term for it was more macrobiotic. Right. right. I have friends who've had breast cancer and breast cancer surgery who follow macrobiotic diets very strictly. So it's, you know, it's, it's 
many of the things I think we think about as a whole food, whole food diet now, it's really getting away from processed foods, yep. eating whole foods, whole plants, whole grains. But she also got interested more in fermented foods. Mm. I mean, at the time when I was growing up, even even Japan, you know, the Japanese food and Japanese culture was still hard to find. Getting miso soup, right? You, you know, and she would incorporate mushrooms a lot into her cooking. Mm-hmm. But these were things you had to seek out a lot more than now. You can go into yeah. any grocery store and get many of these foods, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Where did your interest in nutrition, did it start with your mom? So I went to Cornell and yep. I studied in the School of Agriculture. So I was a biology major in the School mm. of Agriculture. And I have to say, I still draw from those experiences. and. Because whether it was, you know, a lecture that I caught or, you know, agricultural economics that I I took Mm -hmm. when I was there, they were, you know, this was growing and food source was, was such a topic. And again, so ahead of, of, of the time. And so planting seeds in my mind around, okay, well, of course, it makes sense to eat organic and to not want your food bathed in pesticide, right? Like, that's just kind of intuitive. But my experience there was like, it's not just about your health. It's also about mostly about the health of the farmer who's being exposed at great quantity to many of those things, right? Mm-hmm. So so even if we can't if even if we couldn't quantify or we didn't have the data to say here's here's exactly what eating organic will do for your health it was certainly really clear that it would have a massive impact on the health of the person growing the food who is so right. close to putting the pesticide on the soil and then the people who were agricultural workers who again had so many right exposures my experiences there really, again, I still I still draw from them. They were very important. What I'm interested in is just the genesis of, first of all, you, you come out of high school with a broad sort of scientific background, mm-hmm. right? What informed the decision to narrow it down to... Biology, to biology. So first it was biology. And that was really, I, I was in love with physics, to be honest, in high mm-hmm. school. And I didn't, I didn't take biology in high school. So I took AP chemistry, I took AP physics, and lo- just loved science and loved physics and, and, and really thought that I m- might want to be a physics major. I envy you. Uh-huh. In high school, I loved physics, but I hated chemistry. Oh, really? <laughs> the only bad grade I ever made in my life. Oh, really? Yeah. And I have a daughter who a, was a chem major in college. Oh, wow. Anyway, so please continue. <laughs> and then and, and then I was exposed to biology. I wasn't I wasn't sure coming in that I was going to be a, a bio major, but as soon as mm. I was exposed to biology, I thought, wait, this is kind of amazing. A field in which I could I could be analytical and go through the sort of the scientific logic 
but it had direct human application. I'm like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, because with physics, it's it's so cool. It is so, so cool, but it's so abstract. And so yeah. the thought of being able to study a science that had direct implications for humans, mm-hmm. that was, right. then I was sold. And then that was it. I actually ended up doing research at Columbia as part of my undergrad, my my time as an undergrad. We didn't have a medical school up on main campus. And so I ended up doing research with with a physician at Columbia Medical School. And that, that research was in lipid metabolism and nutrition. So really, I became fascinated with studying nutrition from really every aspect that I could imagine. Where, where did medical school come in? So what was going on on the personal side of this journey was that mom was diagnosed with breast cancer at 39. It recurred, recurred. And so it was about my senior year of college that um, she was diagnosed as terminal. She had metastases. And so that was my, you know, the time I took, I, I was taking care of my mother while she was terminal and much of my graduate experience. And mom passed away. I wrote my dissertation and I got, I was, I, I was married at the time and my husband looked at me and he said, I really want to start a business with my father. And, you know, I'm Now's the time you spend time with your family, right? Well, they're here and they're, they're active. And that sounds like a great idea. And he's like in Cleveland. I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I really, you know, I grew up outside of Manhattan. We were living in Manhattan and we like, packed up the car and went to Cleveland. Went to Cleveland. And I really couldn't complain because there was amazing medical training. I spent I I graduated from Case. I spent half of my clinical time at the Cleveland Clinic. I did a fellowship in cardiovascular genetics there. I mean, it was an amazing amazing place to learn medicine. So the the move was fortuitous. The move was fortuitous. The move was fortuitous. And it was and did it seem a natural progression to go from your early research directly into medical school from your your master's degrees and PhD uh, in nutrition? If everything in my life weren't going on, I likely would have just gone right to medical school, but that wasn't practical. I mean, just the amount of of time, concentration, hours um, that it takes. I couldn't do that and and take care of my mother at the same time. Mm -hmm. So there was a, I wanted to to do both my scientific training and my medical training. It, you know, it worked out in that, in that order, but yeah, it was, it was natural and unnatural um, at the same time, because I was a little bit, I was a little bit older, had finished a doctoral degree I think I was able to get maybe more out of it because I had that background, but at times it was not as easy, you know, as having just come out of undergrad and gone through that course. And you you told me a story once when you and I were talking in your office that has stuck with me, and that is your experience as a medical student vis-a-vis the, uh, what, the, the sartorial 
uh, behavior of other women who were in medical school as opposed to the way you dressed? Oh, this was much later. The, uh, the, this was much later. So, so this you know, was, wasn't in med, med school? So I went through internal medicine and then cardiology training. So I'm a trained ah. cardiologist. And, and right. the last that I checked, and maybe it's changed in the last year or two, but the last time that I checked, and certainly when I was going into it, only 15% of the incoming fellows were female. So the highly male field. Yeah. It's, it is tough training. It's, it's grueling. It should be. Everything's an emergency. You have to make very quick decisions. You train in the cath lab. There's a lot of radiation exposure, mm-hmm. you know, during that time. So in those are, you know, the, the so perhaps that's uh, one of the reasons why there aren't as many women during their, you know, childbearing years who choose to go into cardiology. I'm not sure if that's, right. like that, you know, part of it, but it's very, it's tough it's tough training. So fewer women. And I know that this sounds strange, but I, on a, I had to make a decision in my career as to whether I was going to be feminine, <laughs> whether yeah. I was going to maintain my female traits, because yeah. I think in any hard field like that, and perhaps women in banking feel the same way or women in the military feel the same way. But you know, when you're in a tough training environment as a woman, there is, it is male characteristics that often take over. Yes. yes. Right. And, you know. And they are often traditionally male dominated fields. Yeah. Fields that, that we, we normally associate with uh, tough decision-making a kind of, for want of a better word, kind of test pilot mentality Mm -hmm. of, you know, damn the torpedoes in full speed ahead. As you were just saying, you have to make decisions very quickly, very immediately. Yeah. Surgeons often that have have that same reputation, and their field the field is tends to be, or at least has been in the past, much narrower in terms of masculine, feminine. Right, and so so I think that there is a culture of, you know, if I talk hard, if I am harsh, if I talk fast, yeah. If I'm tough, if I'm tough, then I know what I'm doing, you know, and I am a, I am a good doctor. I had to make a decision as to whether I was going to kind of keep my femininity uh, and, and be that doctor. Right. And and I I think, excuse me for interrupting, but I, I think that also what you're saying is that it's not just about the way you look. Mm -hmm. It's also about what women bring to medicine. Yeah. yeah. Which is empathy and compassion. Yeah. In concert with the the ability to deal with the emergency situations. Yeah, and and I very clearly made the decision to be feminine, to be a woman. I had four children during my medical training. Looking and... back on it, how? <laughs> how did you do Honestly, it? I don't I don't know. I, I don't know. It was very, very hard. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was very hard. It's a whole other topic of okay. <laughs> uh, uh, no. That's a whole other topic of interest of how right. women dedicated female doctors get through it and all of the things that they need to do. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. It just isn't mm-hmm. easy. Yeah. But that was a very important decision, and and I've and I've stuck to it, and I have to remind myself of that every day because. 
it is a lot easier to be hard and and when you are slower when you're kinder it allows moments with patients for them to tell you things that are important about their health yeah maybe sometimes that gets in the way of an appointment ending on time or something you know getting done quickly but but very important for a patient's overall health. And so that's what I saw as I went through the hospital. You know, and the operative word there is overall health. Yeah, overall health. Yeah. 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 So and and you know that's part that's really a lot of the things that brought me back to primary care is having gone through all of that training and seen so much end stage disease, you know, I would say to myself all the time, oh my goodness, if only I had met only I had met them 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But getting back to the beginning in primary care is really where you can stop the process from happening. It's it's hard at at the end of it, um, right, To try right. to go right when you're dealing when you're dealing not just with symptoms and with outcome, but you're also dealing with prevention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, that was one of the major questions I was going to ask you: is what led you, given the fact that you have this extraordinary training in cardiology? Mm-hmm that you decided to return to primary care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's not a decision that that many specialists choose to make, but it was it, it, it was very much driven by that. I really care about changing the course of the disease process mm-hmm. and getting to root cause. And here I was with all of this training in nutrition and all of this care that I wanted to give, we were doing, you know, a lot of heroic things in in the hospital, but I wasn't, you know, I, I really wanted to change the course for 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 people. I didn't want them to get there. I didn't want them to get to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I wanted the ability to use all of that knowledge on a day-to-day basis. We're not taught in medical training a whole lot about prevention. You know, the, the, the medical system, unfortunately, currently is set up primarily to treat disease. Right. Um, it's the way that we're compensated. You're compensated for procedures. Mm-hmm. We're not compensated. They're playing with some models to do this in certain settings right now. But in general, we're not paid to prevent disease. And, and so, you know, that's how the system is set up now. And so in order to, to be able to have the time, you know, and to talk to patients and also to really impact health, I think it needs to start at the level of primary care. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, speaking of of prevention, from your point of view, what, what do you consider the healthiest diet? I think that there are a lot of ways to eat a healthy diet. I think that there are certain things that we can all accept as truths, though. Mm-hmm. And and when I say there are many there are many healthy diets, uh, certainly the the things that you might eat in one area of the world are different from you know what we might eat in the United States and what is available to us, right? And right. so. Well, we can talk about specific foods as being healthy. That doesn't mean that you could, should go get it and ship it here, you know, to eat it. But yeah. I think 
in general, there are some very important principles. And one is to, to eat whole foods, just whole foods. So avoid packaged, processed anything. If it doesn't look like a food in its whole form, then it shouldn't be something that's a staple of your diet. Right. right? The shorter the ingredient list is, the better. Yeah. Yeah. And the ingredient list should have nothing that you can't pronounce, nothing that you don't know. So a mm -hmm. an oat, right? Yep. Not 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 an oat that's broken down and that has other ingredients and preservatives and other things, right? Mm. So just whole foods. And I know that that sounds so simple, but it's incredibly, it's incredibly important. So whole fruits, whole vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, legumes, right? Those should be your, those should be your foundation, the foundation of the diet. Right? Mm hmm and in their whole form, like I don't love, I don't love juice because, you know, juicing the fruit means that your body will metabolize it in a different way. You know, mm -hmm. you, if, once you take out the fiber and you can also drink something much more quickly than you can eat it, then you're going to right. get that sugar spike, right? So you can't even say that there's one food that is so healthy because it, it's also the devil's in the details. How are you consuming the food? And where is that food from, right? Mm -hmm. How is it prepared? Yeah. And, well. and how is it and how is it grown? Mm -hmm. We have a lot of GMO seed that is Roundup ready in the United States. Now, when you're when you're talking about juicing, this is we'll separate that from things that you blend, but that remain uh, uh, fibrous. That is, mm -hmm. they keep their physical composition. They're just mm -hmm. turned into a liquid. Mm -hmm. Although I think that it's a, I, I think that there's a spectrum of, of healthy. I still think that most adults, unless the only way that you're going to get something into somebody is by juicing, for example, right. with kids, they will, yeah. they're not gonna, they're not gonna eat a fruit unless you know, you put it into a smoothie. So, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways, okay, well, that's maybe better than, than nothing. But for an adult human, still think about a smoothie. If you took the components of the smoothie and put them in a bowl, you'd probably eat about half of it. Ah. And w versus drinking the smoothie, it's gone in, what, 30 seconds? Yep. So I still think in an absolutely ideal world where you're like crossing the T's and dotting the I's on somebody's health, chew your food, mm -hmm. right? Because that is part of the natural process of digestion. Digestion begins in the mouth. Mm -hmm. It actually begins before, before that. It begins with the nose. You smell, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Your body begins to get ready for food when you smell the food. And then, okay. yeah, and then, yeah. and then the mouth and the taste buds. Okay. Is it a sweet food? It's already preparing your stomach for what's mm -hmm. to come. Mm -hmm. So I think the ideal is to chew your food. <laughs> right. Right. And, and uh, also, uh, I think probably obviously, and I, I'm sure a lot of my listeners know this, that there's a big difference between 
foods that have healthy fiber in them and mm-hmm. foods where the, and we're again back, we're back to whole foods where the mm-hmm. fiber hasn't been extracted. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, if and that goes through if, the whole digestive tract, exactly. And, and look, if that smoothie or the juice means that you're going to get greens and otherwise you wouldn't be consuming them, then by all means, you know, you know, yeah. th- that's great. Getting healthy food into your body is important. So I don't want to say, you know, that's, that's absolutely bad, but I think that all of food is just a spectrum of bad to good, right? There's no absolutes. Is eating the fruit better than drinking the fruit? Yes. Right. But, but Mm -hmm. is that still better than Coca-Cola? Yes. Yes. So it's a spectrum of, of choices. Right. I always use the example of water, you know, because people come into the office, they're like, is it good for me or is it bad for me? Everything's good for you and bad for you. Take water. We can all agree. It's good for you, right? Water is mm-hmm. good. But every physician has seen somebody die in the hospital from over-consuming water. Oh, really? There are certain medications that cause you to drink a lot of water. You can drink yourself to death with water, right? Hyponatremia can kill you. Mm-hmm. So everything that is good can be bad at quantity, right? So everything is about a moderation. Moderation, right. And what about the relationship of diet and uh, weight gain? Because I know a lot of people are confused by any number of different claims about whether carbohydrates are bad for you, Mm -hmm. whether whatever food contributes to weight gain and or weight loss. Mm -hmm. What's the the overall kind of best advice for people in terms of weight loss? Because I'm I'm sure that more people are looking for weight loss than they are for weight gain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a a good question. It gets to... I think something that's very fundamental in nutrition that 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 when you're asking about what is healthiest there there's the health let's say there's the healthiest diet for long life for overall nutrition right but there are there are certain diets that will help you lose weight faster that maybe aren't good for you in the long run right mm-hmm. And so I think it's tricky when we talk about weight loss because some people want it quick, fast, and now. Right. <laughs> um, Which is what most of the advertising. Yeah. Uh, and and so, you know, if you want to drop five pounds quickly, you know, the, there's um there's certainly diets that do that. But that's not what I that's not what I advise my patients to do. I, I think we have to be concerned about the long term as as primary care physicians i know it can be important to fit into a dress but i really want people to get into healthy eating habits for their whole life mm-hmm. so if we have two dietary choices that can both result in not gaining weight let's choose the one that's better for your overall health in the long run right, right? And and so I for what I recommend, and I'm not a one size fits all kind of diet. I, I don't give that kind of advice. I think right. you get to know the person, get to know their dietary pre- preferences, get to know their history, what's worked for them in the past, and then you try to make their diet just a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit more high quality. Overall, 
eating whole foods. So getting away from anything processed, right? Because you think about a processed grain, okay? Mm -hmm. All of the fiber and nutrient is on the outside of the grain, right? If you think about like a brown rice or... Right. And once you strip that fiber and micronutrient off, what's in the center is something white and it's something very close to sugar. And in fact, it starts in your mouth. When you have a simple carbohydrate, it begins to break down to sugar. And by the time that it hits your stomach, it's pretty much sugar, right? And so then you get a spike of glucose versus were you to eat the whole grain, your, your, your stomach, your body has to work on that exterior nugget and the fiber right. and, and slowly getting the sugar out. And so instead of a, you know, this, I've told you where the camera is. It's right. more of, a, you know, something like that. Right. And right. those sugar spikes lead to more hunger, more insulin that's needed, you know, to tamp down the glucose. So in general, eating whole foods will take care of those glucose spikes. And then the other part of it is that the fiber goes down to the lower part of your gut where these little microbes live. They're the, the you know, we can't digest that, but that's what they're, they live off of. And right. so it's really supporting the flora in your gut that have all kinds of health benefits, all kinds of health benefits. Mm -hmm. Affects your mood, protection from viruses, bacteria, inflammation, you know, that's their little environment. And they're, you know, they're our little frontline fighters. Lots of health benefits of having fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, fibrous plant material as the base of your diet. Right. That gives you complete protein. And when you're choosing that, when you're choosing plant foods for protein over animal proteins, animal proteins have none. So if you take like the standard American diet, which is kind of meat and cheese in the morning and meat and cheese for lunch and meat and cheese for dinner, and mm -hmm. it's like eggs, egg and cheese with processed meat, bacon, that's breakfast. You know, lunch might be a burger with cheese and a processed bun and dinner being some kind of, you know, steak with, I don't know, maybe there's a veggie in there, like broccoli mm -hmm. with some cheese on it. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, the, when you think about that kind of standard um, American diet that has almost no fiber, right? Very little, very little fiber. So, so those are just, those are, those are the choices, I think. Right. And, and, and obviously, it, obviously it follows that then whatever the healthiest diet is, whatever the best diet is, is also one that will contribute to a, a healthier lifespan. Yeah. As well. Yeah. So the longevity. When you and and many studied, you know, long-lived kind of cultures, of course the blue zones, they're they're you know, books that have looked at this. They may have very different ingredients to their diet, but the one thing that is very similar is that they're highly that what is what is consumed day to day is very high in plant matter 
and right. very minimal in animal matter, um, particularly meat. That's more of a rare sort of celebration than yes. a staple. Yes. There are some fermented dairy in those diets, like yogurts, goat yogurts and, and such. Meat and animal products are not the, the staple. The staple is plant matter. Yes. That when you talk about the what we consider to be the traditional American diet, meat and potatoes, the first word is meat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, meat with a side of meat. Meat with a side of meat, and also with a with a uh, a side of uh, if it's a regular potato uh, that has very little fiber in it, mm -hmm. as opposed to sweet potatoes. Well, well, yeah, they're they're generally or they're fried. Yeah. Uh, yes. Exactly. Exactly. I've got one final question that I always mm -hmm. ask everybody. If there's one food from when you were a kid, from when you were young, not necessarily mm -hmm. a small child, but somewhere in your uh, your life between the time you were uh, uh, aware of food and the time when you were an adult, that comes to mind that evokes some sort of a memory that gives you a real sort of flashback a uh, reminiscence of a time in your life of of, uh, of of people or a certain person in your life, uh, mm -hmm. a particular event in your life. Is there one particular food memory that you have from that time in your life that sort of stands out? Well, I'll tell you about something that we do now that makes everything sort of come full circle for me. So sure. now I have four kids and right. we, one thing that we love that I think just makes us all really happy is my children have um, learned to make their own pizza dough, which is a serious, oh. which is a serious, <laughs> which is taken very seriously in our home and in many other homes, how to make the right dough out of just a few ingredients. And, yep. and we get our our flour from, we get our flour and our tomatoes from Italy and, you know, and we care very much about and our olive oil from a lovely couple in Italy who sends us fresh oh. batches of olive oil. Oh, wow. And we all gather around and, um, and we make dough either the morning before or the night before. Mm-hmm with wonderful ingredients and we have a pizza oven and we we make pizza together. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to tell you about this, but we have bees on, uh, we have a, a, a beehive here. We have an apiary oh, wow. at our home. Oh, how wonderful. The kids take honey from our bees and with the crust of the pizza, they dip the, the crust into the honey. Oh, It's like this just wonderful tradition, just you know, that brings us together. There's very little, I mean, this is minimal. Most of it is, you know, this, this wonderful flour and fresh tomatoes um, mm -hmm. and a very light kind of pizza with basil on it and a little bit of olive oil. But it's an amazing experience doing that with the kids and to see their love of food and their attention to food and how they treat mm -hmm. the dough and depending on the temperature and <laughs> the yeah. time of year and and making it better and better. And then we'll go right. out to local pizza places, the city or around town and try to 
figure out if they have a good dough exactly how they, <laughs> how they make it. So well, but, but essentially what you're describing is the, the, the kind of transformation and creation of community that food affords all of us. Yeah, it, yeah. Particularly it when we share it and when we prepare it together. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a very wonderful healing experience to sit around a table or to be in a kitchen with people mm-hmm. that you love. Yeah. And creating a meal, a nutritious meal. It's what we were supposed to do and, and to be. Um, and I think that it is absolutely essential for our happiness. I mean, until recently, as humans, just the human animal, we spent most of our day finding and making food. And I think it is, there's no question, it's our separation from that process that, that leads to unhappiness and getting back to that. And ill health. Yeah, and ill health and, and getting getting back to it, it's it's not only better for our bodies, but also better for our beings, our psyche. We need to connect as, as humans. We need connection. We need community. We need to put good, wholesome food into our bodies. And that's just getting, it, it's gotten so hard. Mm-hmm. Well, in some ways so hard, but also it's gotten in some ways easier in the sense that we're now at least in terms of the culture aware of the fact that we have sources for it and Mm -hmm. that we can't, we have Mm -hmm. access to better food. We have access to um, also the, the, the philosophy that this is an important factor in not only our emotional health, that physical health, but our emotional health. And I can't think of a better way to end the <laughs> podcast today than to thank you, Dr. Sarah Seidelman. Oh, thanks for having me. It was fun to talk. Uh, it, it's been really a lovely and wonderful experience, and I thank you very much. <laughs> thanks, Chris. For, for helping us to, uh, to get back to an idea of the fact that we all cook by heart. Yes, we do. All right. <laughs> Take thank care. Thank you, Sarah.